Welcome to our second digital talk on the US election. This AIS talk is possible due to the support of the Austrian-American Partnership Fund, which promotes collaboration and cultural exchange between Austrian and US non-governmental organizations. Our aim is to conduct multiple digital talks uh, in the next weeks uh, with high-ranking specialists and experts covering the US election in order to increase the awareness about the ongoing political processes in the United States, here in Austria and in Europe. Today with me is Stan Sloan, a good friend of our institute and one of America's top experts on the transatlantic relations. He's also the founding director of the Atlantic Community Initiative. And his most recent book is quite interesting. We are going to touch upon it later on. It's called Defense of the West. Stan has many affiliations, but I would like just to mention two most recent ones. He's visiting scholar in political science at the Middlebury College, Vermont, and he's also non-resident senior fellow in the Scowcroft Center at the Atlantic Council of the United States. Um, as you can guess from our title, today we ask the question, will Joe Biden win the US election? But before I give the floor to my dear friend, uh, Stan Sloan, I would like to also mention that he has more than 30 years of public service to various functions. He began his career uh, in the public service, serving as NATO and European Community Desk Officer. Uh, he was member of the US delegation to the Vienna negotiations on mutual and balanced force reductions. He was also employed by the Congressional Research Service of the Library of Congress in a very variety of analytical and research management positions. And he is, by the way, also a distinguished graduate of the Air Force Officers Training School and served as a commissioned officer in the United States Air Force. Now, you see that my guest has a tremendous career um, and he can actually cover today a lot of questions that our listeners and watchers have but i would start i would start with my first question which is what are your personal expectations for this us elections what could be the consequences depending on joe biden's win of the us presidential election the flow is yours stan <laughs> Thank you, Valina, and it's it's great to be working with you again. I think the last time was last September in 2019 when I came to Vienna and we had a, a great meeting to discuss actually some of these questions about the future of the transatlantic relationship. And so we have another opportunity to do that today. The question that is posed by the title of the session is a big one. I'm not an expert on elections, but I have to admit I've been following the course of this campaign very closely. And um, I also have to admit I have uh, my own 
uh, biases, as almost all Americans do. We're very divided right now as a country. There are very few people that are in that category of undecided. In fact, when someone says they're undecided, a lot of people raise their eyebrows and say, how can you be undecided? Either you have to be uh, pro-Trump or anti-Trump, pro-Biden or anti-Biden. But I have, in, in the last couple of days, taken a very close look at uh, the polling. And uh, right now, uh, the question seems to be how large a margin might Joe Biden have in a victory over President Trump. All of the polls are pointing in that direction. Now, we have to take into account the fact that uh, in 2016, at this point, polls were suggesting that uh, that Hillary Clinton would win the presidency. In some ways, the polls were correct. She certainly won the popular vote, uh, but the President Trump uh, managed to get enough of a victory in a couple of key states in order to win the outcome in the Electoral College. And that's why we have had President Trump for the last four years. Some interesting analysis of the current polling uh, is includes the fact that if you factor in uh, the degree to which polls were inaccurate in 2016, uh, Joe Biden still ends up with a winning margin, both in the popular vote and in the Electoral College. Uh, right now, the uh, popular vote is uh, Biden is looks to be leading in the polls by around 10%. There are lots of different different polls, obviously. Some are 8 or 9, some are 12 or 14, but the average is around 10%. That's a very large lead, and it averages out over 50% of the likely voters. And so it's a fairly um, clear picture at this point. We've got three weeks to go before... Uh, the outcome, uh, in fact, we don't know exactly when we'll know the outcome because so many people are voting by absentee ballot and uh, early ballot, early voting, that uh, the outcome may not be known as normally there's a projection made on the night of the voting. Most people expect that the, uh, the various uh, projection, people who make projections will not be able to do so on the night of November the 3rd, that everyone will have to wait perhaps longer. Okay. And uh, a lot depends on how quickly states count the absentee ballots or the mail-in ballots. And um, that that's going to make for a fascinating time here in the United States. Let me just make one more comment about what the polls are showing, and that is that a couple of the states that were critical to Trump's victory, where he eked out a small margin in uh, in votes are leaning to or, or uh, very strongly in the, the Biden column this time around. And at this point, uh, most of the projections that I've seen show the uh, Electoral College outcome as, as uh, strongly favoring Biden. And again, things could change. What might, what might change? Well, one of the things, that, one of the big issues, obviously, perhaps the biggest issue, is the question of how the president's handled the pandemic. And uh, the polls show in this regard that uh, most Americans, a strong majority of Americans, believe that the pandemic, COVID-19, has not been well handled in the United States. And that is why 
both our hospitalizations and our death rates are currently rising again, as unfortunately they are in several European countries as well. And the, the fact that the president still tends to downplay and in fact even brags about downplaying the threat of the COVID-19 as he did at a, at a um, rally just last night in Florida, suggests that uh, he's not going to change his approach. And if he doesn't change his approach, the uh, question is how, how will anyone else be convinced to move over to his side? So he has to, in order to win for at this point, he would have to convince people to switch from their preference for Biden over to a preference for him. And there was some question about whether when he was diagnosed with uh, COVID-19, whether the experience would lead him to take a more serious approach to dealing with the pandemic. It appears that that has not had that impact, that he, in fact, has decided that uh, he will claim that he has a huge victory over the virus. And there even was one, uh, I don't know whether it's an accurate report, but some said that when he was scheduled to come out of Walter Reed Hospital in Washington or outside Washington, that he wanted to wear a Superman T-shirt under his shirt and then tear off his shirt and and show that he was a Superman because he had defeated the virus. He obviously decided not to do that, but in many ways he is he's taking that approach and he's bragging that that he's defeated the virus. He claims, you know, perhaps inaccurately, that he now is immune. Most doctors say we don't know that yet, and if there is immunity, we don't know for how long. Uh, but in any case, there we are. Uh, so three weeks from the election, it looks at this point as if Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. But nothing is nothing is certain until the votes are counted. Mm -hmm. um, in your second edition, just recent edition of your highly interesting book, uh, Defense of the West, uh, transatlantic security from Truman to Trump. I mean, the title reveals itself that this edition looks at how developments inside NATO, but also European Union uh, member states affect their ability to defend against external threats while preserving the Western values in the era of Trump. Um, so actually this book also addresses failures and shortcomings of Western institutions and member states. And of course, on this side of the Atlantic, one major question is, will the transatlantic relationship get better in case of, uh, of uh, Joe Biden's win? And what are your, uh, what is your assessment? What are your expectations in terms of the impact that this US presidential election outcome will have on the relations between uh, United States and European Union member states, so basically the European powers, but also when it comes to the transatlantic community as a whole, because uh, one thing is clear, the COVID-19 pandemic did not spare the transatlantic relationship. The, uh... In my professional judgment, the outcome of the election will have a very large 
impact on transatlantic relations. This is not anything very uh, dramatic or exciting to say, but as we all know, President Trump has been very skeptical about both NATO and the European Union. Uh, he has claimed that uh, both organizations have, the members of both organizations have taken advantage of the United States over the years. The European Union has done it uh, according to his approach through uh, its trade practices, taking advantage of the United States. And the NATO allies have done it as a result of uh, their insufficient contributions to defense. And so uh, one would have to anticipate that uh, this approach would continue under a second Trump administration, that uh, if it changes at all, one would have to expect that it would change in the direction of even more critical approaches toward NATO and uh, toward the European Union. Now, if you look at what, uh, what Vice President Biden has said and has written, and there's a lot out there now uh, in a foreign policy article and elsewhere uh, where he has laid out his views, he has suggested that his top priority will in fact be rebuilding the transatlantic relationship. When uh, Biden was a senator and I was working at the Congressional Research Service, I did uh, quite a few studies at his request of transatlantic relations. And then he would publish them as committee prints in the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Senate. And so I've worked very closely with him. I, I know exactly what his commitments are to transatlantic relations. I know that he believes that the United States is stronger when it has good relations with its allies. Uh, he frequently says that uh, we're stronger together, meaning stronger when, we, when the United States works with its allies. And so I anticipate that the first, one of the first priorities of a Biden administration would be to try to stabilize uh, the uh, American position internationally, and that would lead with uh, trying to restore the trust and faith in the United States among our allies. Now, that said, uh, given all of the problems of recent years, that will not be easy. It will not come easily, and I wouldn't expect Europeans immediately to say, oh, good, it's Biden, so we can trust the United States now, even though that is obviously <clears throat> what uh, he, would, he would like, and that would be his objective. There were problems, as we know, in the relationship before Trump came along, and there will be problems afterwards. And I think the, the main difference is one of approach and the, uh, the rebuilding of confidence in the alliance is critical in the U.S.-EU relationship. They, they go together in, in that sense because they're critical parts of the transatlantic relationship. Wolfgang Ischinger has been saying lately, and he didn't, he didn't uh, create the saying, but he's been saying lately that trust is the currency of diplomacy. I would add to that that trust is the currency of democratic alliances, that uh, dem democracies, uh, if you have uh, an alliance among countries that are not democracies, power can be the currency of that, those relationships. But in an alliance like NATO and in the transatlantic relationship more generally, trust is critically important. And I think that will be the top priority for President 
Biden to try to restore a degree of trust, at least in uh, in the eyes of Europeans being able to trust the United States to do what it, it says it's it's going to do and to do it along with allies rather than separate from them. And this is perhaps part of a bigger question. Another thing that, that President Trump has done is shown his skepticism about international organizations and international cooperation in general. And uh, the alliance part has been a subset of that. But in general, he has taken a negative attitude toward the United Nations and particularly some of its sub-organizations like the World Health Organization, which has been at the center of, of uh, Trump skepticism recently. And this suggests that, that uh, Biden will, I think, try to restore not just the relations with our allies, but also restore American leadership and a positive, positive attitude toward multilateral cooperation in general and the United Nations and other international organizations in particular. Mm -hmm. In your older book, Transatlantic Traumas, you address the issue of illiberalism <laughs> and how illiberalism uh, in fact brought the West to the brink of collapse. You're discussing very important issues there, not uh, only the issue of uh, populism, but also the issue of rising authoritarianism, uh, such as the one coming from countries as Russia or Turkey. And now we have also, uh, during the COVID-19 um, virus outbreak, the issue of uh, ri the rise of China, which is another example of uh, illiberalism and uh, how actually China um, coped with the crisis on the one side uh, it managed the crisis uh, well inwards however it uh, question still remains open as to how it helped the global community in tackling the crisis if we look uh, the at the devastating consequences uh, on both sides of the atlantic uh, and as you've mentioned at the beginning both europe and uh, you know, United States are right now still in the middle of a second wave of COVID-19. Now, the question I have is, what are your expectations uh, in terms of the U.S.-China relationship? Uh, if given that um, that uh, Joe Biden would win the U.S. election, so given that it would be a Democratic uh, president, uh, we know also that during the Obama uh, administration, there were in fact already certain uh, policies uh, launched uh, by Obama as to how to cope with the rise of China, mostly in terms of institutional approaches. Uh, let me just give the example with the TTIP, the trade block between Europe and America, or the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was uh, basically a similar trade block uh, meant uh, with Asian states and United States. So what do you expect in terms of the future relations between United States and China, depending on this election outcome? No matter who wins, the relationship will remain troubled because uh, there are th certain things about China that uh, must be troubling to the West. And some of them are political. Some of them have to do with uh, 
the approach that China has to governance of its people and how that translates also into its foreign uh, policy, and also about its practices in the area of trade, particularly in, uh, in, in which its internal control system gives it advantages in dealing with the outside world that, uh, that have been rejected by, by governments uh, around the world. The difference, I think, uh, and let me, let me just back up and say that uh, President Trump believed that by establishing a close personal relationship with Xi, the Chinese leader, that in fact, um, he, could, he could manage the relationship. Uh, that obviously was, was going, uh, getting in trouble uh, even before the, the uh, pandemic. The pandemic sealed the fate of the relationship under the current president because uh, it basically demonstrated that in spite of his friendly, supposedly friendly relationship with the Chinese leader, that uh, China would just make its own decisions about policies. And, and of course, the president now, every time he refers to COVID-19, he calls it the, the China virus. And so it's very clear what, what his approach is. And the interesting thing during the campaign has been that uh, both Democrats and Republicans have been trying to uh, avoid the, uh, the criticism that they're being too soft on China. And so both Republicans and Democrats want to take a harder, a hard line toward China because of concerns about about internal management of the country, which is more of an issue for Democrats, and also the trade policies taking advantage of the United States and, for that matter, other countries. The uh, so the campaign has, has. It's interesting that China has not become a big issue in part because of the fact that the Democrats have their own criticisms of China and now uh, President Trump has no interest in claiming a great friendship or special angle on, on dealing with China because for that matter, his approach to trade has basically failed, I think most would say. And uh, so he's back to square one in, in many ways. What What is Biden gonna do? The first thing Biden is gonna do, and this is where Everything about Biden tends to link together and go back to multilateralism and traditional allies, because the first thing that he's going to do is try to establish more of a common approach to China with our allies. And he's been very explicit about this, and it's consistent with what we know about both about Joe Biden and about the support of the uh, campaign staff and potential officials that he has working working with him. And so that that, that is the first step. And that, in, in many ways, reestablishing cooperation with allies is sort of the key to the Biden approach to almost everything internationally. That's where he's starting. And I think as the first year of the Biden administration will be one in which he tries to establish uh, stability and uh, predictability in America's uh, role in the world. So this will apply to China as well. And the I'm wondering uh, one thing that I think that uh, if, if we're going to, the United States is going to develop a common approach with its allies, it needs kind of some kind of a concept. 
and the concept I would suggest, and this is just my personal suggestion, and it, it shows my, my uh, experience in the NATO context, my recommendation is for the United States to advocate for the Allies to come up with something that looks like a Harmel approach to China. And Harmel was the approach during the Cold War that uh, the Allies agreed to take an approach to the Soviet Union that featured both competition and defense and detente was the language that was used at that time. And in many ways, that continues to be the approach that the Allies take toward Russia, looking for cooperation when it's possible, but defending against the threats posed by, by Russia. In many ways, this could be a framework, this kind of an approach could be the framework for the United States and its allies to take. It's more complex, obviously, because even though the allies have some dependence on Russia because of energy, the fact is that both Europe and the United States have huge dependencies on the economic and financial relationship with China. And so we are in a position where I, I never thought a total uh, conflicted relationship with China could make sense for Western countries, because in the United States in particular, the China was holding and still is holding very significant amounts of, uh, of American debt. And uh, so it always meant that there was a mutual dependency between the United States and China. So it's, it means that we're not on always on the uh, in the strongest of position in dealing with China, and perhaps the best way to strengthen the position is exactly the way that Biden suggests, and that is to work with allies and to come up with common approaches uh, to understand that China is not going to go away. It's not going to go away economically, financially, or strategically, and so we need to find a, a way to deal with that. Uh, and at the same time, I think it is necessary, if we believe in the West and what we say we believe in, it is necessary to make sure we uh, make it clear that we do not approve of the internal political system of China. Uh, we should make it clear that we don't seek unilaterally to change that system. But uh, when there are human rights violations and uh, uh, policies that China takes toward uh, its people or people, uh, minorities inside uh, its boundaries that in fact uh, we feel free to criticize but not uh, try to get involved in, in uh, influencing internal change. That uh, So there's a fine line to be drawn there and it's one that I think that the Biden administration will try to draw with its allies. Mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned several times uh, one key word, which is multilateralism, and uh, clearly the expectation is that the U.S. election outcome will have a serious impact on the global order and on existent multilateral uh, institutions. Now, you've also mentioned uh, several times already China and also Russia, and uh, given that uh, Russia, China and the West do not share the same understanding when it comes to the concept of multilateralism, however, they are all participants in the existent multilateral structures, um, 
I would like uh, I would like to ask you to touch upon this issue. What would be your assessment when it comes to the possible impact on of the U.S. election outcome on the future of global order as well as um, multilateralism? We've observed an increasing pressure coming from Russia and China at the UN level that means uh, within UN um, um, institutions so within the United Nations structure we've also observed coordinated actions and measures and we also observed overlapping uh, geopolitical interests when they obviously tried and are trying to uh, basically create a counterweight to the uh, US influence in international relations uh, and uh, with that respect how do you expect that uh, uh, Biden as a potential winner from the US election would address these issues um, and what is your expectation also for the further development of the global order? Uh, do you expect rather a multipolarity in which the United States will try to uh, slide back into uh, more like Obama administration's uh, international goals, such as the ones I mentioned, and you've also outlined in terms of institutional cooperation, in terms of strengthening certain partnerships and alliances, or do you expect also additional initiatives coming out of from the new administration? What 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 is your expectation on that issue? Well, as as you know, in my book Transatlantic Traumas, I identified the fact that both Russia and China wanted to change the international system, believing that the Western security system had put them at a disadvantage. And so we know that they that they both uh, would like to substitute uh, different international systems for the one that has been basically dominated by the Western countries. And so we know that there is a challenge, it has been a challenge. We also know that uh, one, of the, one of the things I think the Biden people will be very careful about is making sure that they don't do things that tend to push China and Russia together. Uh, will be an attempt, I think, to differentiate uh, policies and approaches to the two countries, even while opposing the approaches that the two of them have toward the international system. So the, the multilateral approach that I think the Biden administration is likely to take is one that will, will value international institutions. That means recognizing that both China and Russia play important roles in those institutions, that the institutions may not always work well because of the fact that uh, China and or Russia will take different approaches than the United States and the European Union. And that, so I think that the approach that Biden will take will be very positive toward multilateral organizations, but also sanguine and pragmatic about what the possibilities are. And so that, that I think would be the way to characterize the likely Biden approach. There, it's, I think they have been somewhat careful in the in their campaign not to go too far down the road in terms of defending international organizations, but it's very clear that their approach is very positive. They've already indicated that on day one they will the United States will rejoin the World Health Organization. 
They've indicated that they will seek to negotiate a new agreement uh, with uh, allies on Iran, with Iran, on Iran's nuclear program. There have been many, many indications coming out from, from the Biden campaign about things on the, on the agenda. So that's, that's um, say, I think that that will tend to bring the United States back into the game. In many ways, the Trump administration has taken the United States out of the game, out of the international system. And that has been reflected in the attitude toward the organizations, attitude toward other countries, attitude toward our allies. I think that what the administration has done toward relations with Germany has been most destructive and made U.S. cooperation with Europe much more difficult. It uh, therefore is, this is a, a huge rebuilding project for the Biden administration. And I don't think we should expect that they will uh, manage to overcome all of the, the problems in, in the near term. But as I suggested earlier, their first priority will be to try to stabilize and make more predictable the U.S. role in the international system. And whether this will then lead to uh, United States leadership being restored in that system remains to be seen. The expectation of many internationally during the Trump administration has been that the United States has abdicated leadership. The Biden administration will try to bring leadership back, but I think it will also be open to sharing leadership responsibilities. And I don't mean leading from behind, I mean sharing leadership responsibilities with the European Union, uh, with other Western powers, Japan, for example, South Korea. And uh, one of the big changes, of course, will be the Biden administration, instead of making a point of attacking Germany, Japan, South Korea, and other allies, and we'll make a point of cooperating with them, even when we have differences. And there will be differences. But I think that will be the, the major change from the, uh, the Trump administration's approach to the international system. Mm -hmm. uh, Stan, you also mentioned Germany, and uh, obviously one of the key issues in the troubled uh, relationship between the United States and Europe within the transatlantic uh, community, but also outside of it uh, during the Trump's administration was uh, uh, basically the personal relationship between Trump and Mer Merkel, which was really at its lowest, but also uh, the deteriorating relationship between Germany and the United States. Uh, so um, my question to you is, uh, do you expect that uh, uh, Joe Biden as a potential winner would actually try to first and foremost, um, you know, get this relationship better, but also would Joe Biden actually support a stronger European pillar within uh, NATO, uh, basically a kind of a, a sort of a partial emancipation of uh, Europe within uh, the, you know, in the field of uh, security and defense. So basically within the transatlantic community, which Trump vehemently was opposed to, as we know. And uh, I mean, we know also that he wasn't a fan of, a uh, big fan of NATO, but also uh, not big fan of uh, European Union. So how do you think that uh, Joe Biden would uh, approach this issue? 
uh, obviously Europeans are right now uh, at the crossroads, so to say, in terms of how to cope with their own with their own basically uh, security and defense policy, so that they are also contributing uh, in a more efficient way to the um, to the transatlantic community. So, what is your take on that matters? Big question. Let me let me start with the smaller question, and that is the relationship with Miracle. Of course, she will not be chancellor forever, and um, so the question will be. Uh, obviously, how Biden deals with her successor as well as dealing with her. The fact is that the uh, I think that the relationship between the United States and Germany will improve almost instantly uh, with Biden as president. It doesn't mean it will resolve all of the issues of problems. And the fact is that the Biden, the Trump administration has so badly damaged the U.S. image in Germany. If you look at the public opinion polls, it's uh, scary to see what Germans think about the United States now. And in fact, scary to see what Europeans think about the United States now. And uh, I, although I say that, I would say that uh, the views in Europe are largely views of the United States under a Trump administration and those views are echoed by the Americans that oppose the Trump administration. So it's there may be more common ground there in, with for the Biden to build on. Now, in terms of the of the European pillar in the alliance, I have to reflect back a little bit on history in the early 1980s. Uh, I wrote actually what was the the first book in the series that uh, of which the the new edition is the latest. But in 1983-4, I wrote a book called NATO's Future Toward a New Transatlantic Bargain. I think I was the first one that used that term, new transatlantic bargain. Uh, the term transatlantic bargain had been around for a while, but I added the new to it. What was the new transatlantic bargain? What I argued for in the 1980s was a transatlantic alliance in which <clears throat> the Europeans were more cohesive inside the alliance and actually did constitute a pillar uh, inside the alliance. I made the clear point that uh, the way for it to be successful would be for that pillar to be inside the transatlantic relationship, not outside it. And that, uh, since that time, has been a problem because there have been tendencies in some areas in Europe to uh, create a pillar that is basically outside of that relationship. We've seen it particularly from Paris uh, because that uh, has been the uh, the independent inclination of not just de Gaulle but of subsequent French leaders as well that uh, the tendency to when building up a European pillar to build it up in many ways in opposition to American power and American dominance so I, I understand the motivations and the the uh, the rationales for the French approach and for those elsewhere in Europe who share that approach. But to my mind and my judgment, that is not what will be in the best interest of Europe and the United States. That said, clearly, I think Biden, knowing some of his the views of um, many of his advisors and the, the, the burden sharing question that we talk about is not going to go away. Americans will still want Europeans to do more on behalf of their own defense to make larger uh, actual contributions to security in Europe. 
And so that, that won't change, except the, tech, the approach to doing it will change. Instead of uh, the American government beating up on Europeans, criticizing them, attacking them, as uh, in many ways the Trump administration has done, or at least President Trump has done. I have to say in some ways, the you know, below the level of the president, uh, his subordinate officers, uh, Secretary of State, Secretaries of Defense, he's had several in both cases, have been more modest in their in their approach to dealing with the allies and more friendly in in some ways and so the uh, the united states has not taken some of the more dramatic steps that might have been suggested by trump's rhetoric my concern about biden even though he will do away with with that kind of an approach it'll be a much more cooperative work with the allies approach the biden administration will Will want will expect the Europeans to continue to improve their defense contributions to the alliance. Their argument will be, you know, if if you don't do that, you could get another Trump down the road. And there is a good argument to be made that that the burden sharing argument was one thing that sold the Trump approach to some Americans. No question about that. And that's not going to disappear. And even a very moderate, modest, uh, centrist Americans believe that Europe should do more. So the burden sharing issue is not going to go away. My ironic concern about the Biden administration has to do with a mistake that I think the Obama administration made. The mistake that I think that they that they made was to believe that Europe could do more than it actually could do. And I don't mean this in economic terms. I mean this in political terms. I think there was a belief reflected in Obama administration policies that if the United States encouraged and even uh, praised Europe for unity and pushed Europe toward more unity, that it would happen. I think that was a total misreading of political realities in Europe. My reading of political realities is that the United States policy, even though the United States was critical to the beginning of the process of European integration in the 1950s, American support, particularly starting with the Marshall Plan, but continuing for quite a few years after that, was very supportive of the process of European integration. But I don't think, in my judgment today, whether the United States opposes or supports further European integration is not going to term, determine the outcome of the integration process. I believe there are serious political obstacles that the Europeans themselves put up. I think what has been accomplished in the European Union is spectacular and is very positive. But to expect that the European Union can then go to the next step of actually creating something like a European Defense Union, a European Army, all of that is, um, I think, unrealistic. And it's unrealistic because none of those defense aspects can be possible until Europe has a federal union, until Europe is a, a unitary actor internationally. And I don't see countries accepting that. I see some European countries that would be more, more interested than others in going to that point. But in most European countries, particularly in the larger ones, and now, obviously, the UK is sort of out of that picture. 
but I still see with France and Germany and Poland and other other European countries an approach that suggests that uh, going to that next stage of uh, actually becoming a fully united, politically united Europe is not in the immediate future. I don't see it happening right away. So I don't think the United States should count on that happening right away and should encourage levels of increased cooperation among the Europeans on defense without expecting that it will get to the point of being totally uh, unified. One thing that people um, neglect uh, when talking about Europe's reliance on the United States is that going to the next stage of some kind of European defense union under a European federal state, going to that next stage requires European states to rely on each other, to depend on each other, because it would mean uh, smaller countries giving up parts of their defense efforts and relying on their neighbors to provide those elements of defense that they may think are still important. And that I don't see, you know, there are, there has been progress in Europe in developing multilateral internal European cooperation where countries demonstrated some willingness to rely on their neighbors to provide certain aspects of defense. But that hasn't gotten to the point where you have that full trust inside Europe of one another to move dramatically in that integrative direction. Mm -hmm. Stan, I see a few questions coming from the audience uh, sent to me, and I will ask three of them, uh, as I see that uh, we don't have much uh, time left. One question relates to the Vice President candidate Kamala Harris. What is your take on her as the potential Vice President, which will be her you know, most important uh, uh, fields uh, which she will try, where she will try to make a difference. And uh, could we see her as a, as a positive role model uh, following the failed uh, presidents, uh, presidency, can, well, president's candidacy, uh, candidacy by Hillary Clinton, which, which now could be basically, you know, covered by Kamala Harris. That's one question. So basically relating to female leadership in U.S. politics. Then there is, of course, uh, uh, there are two questions uh, related to Europe once again. Um, one is uh, about disinformation. Now, disinformation and hybrid trends uh, are back uh, to the political agenda. And that is something that has been already uh, in place during the Cold War. So if there is one organization that is really well equipped with uh, dealing with this kind of issues, that is NATO. So how do you see that the United States will be engaged in uh, coping with these uh, issues, particularly under uh, Joe Biden's uh, presidency? And uh, final question, of course, once again about multilateralism and the multilateral approach. What would be, in your expectation, the approach of uh, Joe Biden um, towards uh, the GCPOA, will the United States go back to the uh, Iran deal uh, where the European powers, but also China and Russia are still very much on track and want to save it? And uh, do you expect that the United States would be more 
actively engaged in the direct neighborhood of uh, Europe, uh, the, 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 the neighborhood to the south, where uh, European powers are facing uh, a series of uh, tensions um, and military conflicts, but also to the east with the well-known assertive uh, regional player Russia and with an increasingly assertive um, regional player Turkey. Wow, three great questions. I'll very briefly start with the first one, Kamala Harris the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket. I have to first make an admission. I actually, uh, before she dropped out of the uh, the competition for, for the uh, nomination uh, for, to be the presidential candidate, I was a supporter of uh, Kamala Harris. It's part of my uh, broader belief in the fact that uh, we need more women involved in taking senior positions and um, Sorry, I have to clear my screen thinks I haven't been busy, so I had to tell it not to not to go anywhere. I, I'm I have uh, I'm a very strong supporter of Kamala Harris, and this is part of my belief that we need more uh, strong and effective women in government. Uh, to some extent, you can see that uh, much more effectively applied in in Europe. I think it's coming in the United States, and uh, we have so many uh, smart, effective uh, women who now are getting in or already in politics, and I think she is a lead one. I think because I have to say, because I supported her for the presidential nomination, if in fact uh, she becomes the president, the presidential nominee in 2024, uh, I think it will be a good thing for the United States. I think it's uh, a good thing both for uh, the role of women and also the role of minorities in our political system. So I, I've, I think she's 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 very strong, very good. She'll make a very good vice president. On the question of disinformation, uh, there's no question, but it's something that I addressed without necessarily using that catchword in transatlantic traumas. But the fact is that. Uh, the uh, Russia was has been very actively involved in providing disinformation, not just in the American election 2016 and now, but it also has been very involved in supporting radical right populist parties and politicians in Europe with money, uh, covert assistance. Uh, I think it's pretty well documented at this point that Russia was uh, providing assistance to the Brexit campaign in the UK, believing and very clear that this was something that was a high priority for Putin, and that was to uh, support Brexit, because Putin believes that the European Union and the UK are both weaker uh, with the UK out of the European Union. The, the future, I think that the Biden administration will definitely want NATO to put more focus on, on responding to and providing the uh, the correctives for uh, of initiative or kind of intrusion by by Russia in particular. The problem is, of course, that a lot of this has to be done on the national level, not on the NATO level. I think NATO needs to provide strong support for uh, national attempts to counter the Russian disinformation, and they can do that by uh, putting even more effort into its information program and efforts. And I think that the Biden administration will take a very strong 
position on this. I think Biden administration very sensitive to the fact that uh, not only defense efforts in terms of military hardware are important, but the political side of the alliance is just as important in terms of maintaining a strong defense and support for the objectives of the alliance. After all, the alliance is based, is an ideological alliance as well as a military alliance. The North Atlantic Treaty makes that very clear that democracy, the rule of individual liberty and the rule of law are the, the keystone principles for the alliance. And I think most experts would say that the fact that NATO is more than just a military alliance is one reason why it still exists today, even after the end of the Cold War. On the third question, the United States will remain actively engaged to the south of, of Europe. I think there's some question about the, the Biden administration, I think would like to reduce the profile of the United States in the region. And perhaps there will be a different kind of focus there as well. United, the Biden administration will want to show support for Israel. I think it will want to have a relationship with Saudi Arabia, but will not want to depend as exclusively on Saudi Arabia in the region as the Trump administration has. The Biden administration will be much more critical of Saudi human rights practices. Uh, the uh, Khashoggi experience is still very fresh in um, American minds. And uh, I think that will sh show through in terms of uh, criticism of, of uh, Saudi Arabia in the future. The, I think that the United States will re-engage uh, with the Iran deal. From domestic political purposes, the administration probably will have to ask for a renegotiation. And for that matter, Iran may want to have a renegotiation. In any case, I think that's an area where the United States will work very closely with the European participants in the agreement and try to head toward a new accord that can be sold in the United States as being in our interest and will uh, basically establish the approach that was attempted the first time around to slow down Iran's nuclear program and hopefully lead to, at some point, Iran actually uh, not becoming a nuclear weapon state. Now, that's only going to happen if uh, if Iran perceives itself as not being threatened by other countries. And so the politics of all of this in the long run are going to be important. But the technical aspects of the agreement in the near term are important. The West does have a good bit of uh, leverage with Iran right now, and it could be used to get a very good agreement out of Iran. Iran's economy is, is devastated. It's in very bad shape. The combination of sanctions and uh, perhaps its own mismanagement and COVID-19 put Iran in very bad condition. I've always felt that uh, the, the Iran-U.S. relationship was a tragic one because the Iranian-American people actually have, uh, I think, more in common than, uh, than separates them. But the leadership of Iran has been, uh, and again, I'm not going to go back to the history of how we got there. Part of that certainly was our fault, no question, our support for the Shah way back when, and opposition to those who wanted to uh, depose him. Uh, that, that established a very bad relationship. 
but I think there is there's reason to be hopeful for the future. The starting point, to my mind, is renegotiation of the Iran Accord. I think the United the Biden administration does also want to reduce the American troop presence in Afghanistan and in Iraq, but uh, will want to do it under conditions that are uh, constructive and progressive and not dramatic, not uh, not dramatically pulling troops out, but doing it in a way that serves both international interests and those of the United States. So I think that that's the, uh, I've covered those three questions. Do you, do you have more? Um, in fact, uh, they, the most question relates uh, actually to issues which we have already covered. Um, as you can notice, uh, basically it's all about the future relationship between Europe and the United States, which is basically at the core of the West, so to say, um, and how a democratic uh, president will actually manage to repair the transatlantic uh, partnership, but also, um, yeah, I see actually a question uh, which actually just uh, arrived at that minute. Let me dictate it to you. And uh, that is also related to Joe Biden. So would Joe Biden maintain the current US policy to curb China's global expansionism? So the expectation on that uh, side of the Atlantic is obviously that the rise of China would not be necessarily only a positive, will not necessarily have only a positive, uh, uh, positive impact. Um, and then there is another question, will, will Joe Biden continue to address China's massive domestic human rights violation? And I think that was one issue that we could not touch upon uh, during the last 60 minutes, uh, but has a lot to do with one of your books, which is the book on illiberalism, because uh, it's not just about democracy and rule of governance, it's also very much about human rights violations, right? So uh, what is your take, how we are going to tackle these issues collectively as the West, or how do you think a US president such as Joe Biden would actually make a difference in that matter? Well, as I as I suggested earlier, the first step of the Biden administration will be to try to develop a more common approaches with the allies to dealing with China. And I think that any collective approach will have to have some focus on human rights. I think that there is a strong interest in human rights in Europe and in the United States and that the, the Biden administration will want to do that. Whether, whether the administration will want to do it to the point of actually producing uh, divisions inside uh, in, the, in the relationship between China and the West, I think is another question. I think they'll try to approach it uh, with a somewhat subtle approach, and I think Europeans will want to do that as well. well I, see, I see good grounds for the United States and Europe agreeing on ways to criticize and uh, point out China's uh, violations of human rights without necessarily breaking the the uh, overall possibilities for cooperation with China. The uh, Chinese military expansion is something that will remain of concern to the United States. 
uh, probably should be of concern to Europeans as well, even though uh, members of the European Union are not engaged in, in the South China Sea area or in Asia at, at all, really. There may be some attempt by the uh, administration to suggest that Europeans could show some greater interest in managing the rise of China from a strategic military point of view. And that could be a difficult thing to discuss in the alliance. But on the other hand, I think we've seen the first step in NATO in London last year to at least mentioning the challenges posed by China. And so I think that the discussion is going to continue moving in that direction under uh, a Biden government. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we managed to extensively cover all relevant and important issues. And uh, I would like to thank you very much for your open and really honest way of uh, addressing the issues and uh, giving us uh, such uh, comprehensive replies. I would like to also draw the attention of our listeners or watchers to your uh, recent book, uh, Defense of the West, Transatlantic Security from Truman to Trump. The book is available, you can purchase, uh, and I purchase it and I can strongly recommend it uh, to all our listeners to buy it. And I am looking forward, yes, that's the book. A little bit to your left, to your left. Yes. Uh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Stan is also, um, uh, you can find Stan on Twitter as well. He's uh, really engaging with, uh, you know, with uh, people who are interested in his uh, topics and have questions. Uh, so you can find him on Twitter as well. And uh, I'm looking forward to your next participation, to your visit, next visit to Europe, where we will address, uh, hopefully, the issues that will be uh, arising following the US election. And we all hope for a very positive uh, development, particularly when it comes to the relationship between Europe and United States, as we all know that uh, this uh, relationship is at the core of the transatlantic community and will be very decisive also for the future of the West when it comes to uh, facing all these uh, challenges uh, right now. Thank you very much and stay safe and sound. Lena, thank you very much. My pleasure to work with you again. And let me make one more comment about the book. If you buy the book, you not only get Stan Sloan, you get a magnificent foreword uh, written by Sir Lawrence Friedman. And uh, so it's, it's a double benefit. But again, I look forward to my return to Europe when the conditions allow. And uh, as you know, I, I love Vienna and look forward to returning to, to Vienna at some point in the future. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Stan.